You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Something happened a long time ago, about 100 years ago. I don't know, it wasn't 100 years ago, but it was a long time ago. Roughly about the time they discovered the tomb of King Tut. I say, what's this? Roughly the time that the lie detector was invented. I swear I wasn't there. I don't know nothing about it. Now, would I lie to you? And the Charleston was taking off. It was about that time that imaginative minds fell in love with robots. Robots first appeared in fiction in a play called Rossum's Universal Robots, and that presented us with this idea of some sort of mechanical hominid, maybe not a hominid, maybe a homunculus or, I don't know, whatever it was. This thing was similar to us, but it just wasn't flesh and blood. Rossum's Universal Robots, or RUR, was Czech writer Karl Čapek's play, and he gets credit for the word robot. However, it was actually his brother, Joseph, who came up with it. And so, Joe, I don't know what to call these beings, these artificial workers. Eh, hey, how about lavori? Nah, too bookish. Um, they call them robots. From the Czech noun robota, meaning labor. So, same idea, really. Oh, and Karl Čepek did give his brother credit for coming up with that. But it was Karl's play that unleashed the idea of this mechanical force onto the world. And ever since robots began to appear in television and movies, we've had this idea that that really useful, companionable robots were just coming down the pike. We'd soon have them as our friends, our enemies. I mean, they might even replace our pets, maybe our dogs, because movies had given us the impression that this was advanced technology that was nearby. It was coming, and robots would do all these nifty things. Now, uh, tell me, what are your duties here on this planet? I clean your house. I drive your atomic car. I cook your meals. But in real life, they put together cars. So, robots in my daily life? Robots I can come home to? When are we actually going to get these things? Robots are absolutely coming. In fact, they're coming faster than we expect, and they're going to change society as we know it. I'll believe it when I see it, or hear it, as we will on Big Picture Science. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and we heart robots. Well, I'm uh, standing here in a moderately-sized room that's just filled with toys, at least from my point of view, they're toys. All sorts of kit robots and, 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 I don't know, servo motors and soldering irons and model airplanes and stuff like this. I mean, where where was this room when I was a kid? But in fact, I'm here to talk to a representative from Ninth Sense Robotics and, uh, in front of me are a couple of, uh, well, they, they almost look like robots. I mean, they have shirts, but they don't really have chests under those shirts, just shirts. They're kind of boxes that roll on wheels there, and they've got a, a screen on top. Hi, so I'm Marco, and I'm vice president of hardware here at Nysense Robotics. And what we do here is enrich the human experience of being telepresence in other places. Wait a minute, let me get that straight, Marco. Uh, you've got uh, some robots here that are going to allow me to be somewhere else? Yeah, exactly. So let's say, for example, you have a meeting in Chicago and you cannot be there, right? So what you do, you send a robot there and you can virtually transport there so you can do like a Skype conference. 
you put a tablet on the robot and then you can move around. So let's say you're in the meeting room and you can be moving around and watching people, watching a process there, and yeah. Well, Marco, this sounds a little bit to me like something I have on my smartphone. I, I have an iPhone, actually, and it has something called, I think it's called FaceTime, and allows me to talk to people and actually see whom I'm talking to. Now, what's the difference here? I mean, is it uh, the fact that uh, this is kind of a smartphone on wheels? What, what's the difference? Yeah, so the cool thing is, like, you can do that with FaceTime, for example, and you can put this iPad or for whatever it is in the robot and then you can move. So that's the difference. You don't need the help for another person to be just moving around. The robot itself is going to move. So this is an open source robot, which is we're allowing people to be innovative and creative. So if you want to add arms or if you want to add sensors, whatever you want to add. Okay, so this is kind of a, uh, a basic robot that people who are kind of technically inclined could, could buy and then they could make uh, whatever kind of robot out of it they want. Can, can you give me a demo? Oh, sure, sure. I can give you a demo. All right. Well, let, let's do something. So, yeah. We go here into a computer. Okay. We're walking across the lab here. There, there Needless to say, at least a half a dozen computers here. One of them's actually turned on, and that's this one here. Okay. So now we just move the robot here. Okay. Now, on the screen are a bunch of, you know, arrows... Uh, left, right, up, down kind of arrows, stop. I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know, the, a joystick, really, on a screen. He, he's pushing one of the arrows. He, he's moving. And, and now he's tilting his head up and down. <laughs> I can look at you. It doesn't matter what height you are. Pretty obedient guy. If you told your dog to do that sort of thing, probably wouldn't. So exactly, you can move the head up and down. You can see whatever you want to see. Well, I'm sure Ninth Sense Robotics is following the most interesting applications. What's the most interesting application you've heard so far? So we did this uh, in Colombia, actually, with these guys using it's sort of a restaurant, actually. And they have the robot there for getting feedback, right? So the CEO is back here in LA, and he's doing telepresence in the restaurants in Colombia. So he gets the feedback from each table in the restaurant. How was the food? How was the service by doing these telepresence robots? It's a really nice application. Okay, now you're the vice president here. This is a, eventually a for-profit company. I mean, you're not just making these robots to amuse yourself, Marco. Eventually you want to see these things all over the place. Where do you see the market? So people want to buy these because they want to really go to places that they cannot go. For example, a museum, right? Where, let's say in a museum, you want to go to Louvre in uh, Paris, so if we have those robots there, people can go and see the Mona Lisa, for example, right? Even if you're not there in Paris, in France. I can imagine the Louvre buys a hundred of these things, and uh -huh. then, you know, I can log in nowhere, no matter where I am in the world and, and take a tour of the Louvre. But how do I keep myself from, uh, you know, smashing into the people that are actually visiting the Louvre? So, yeah, we have sensors. That's a cool thing. We have a laser range finder and the robot. So that actually senses how far objects are, right? So you know how far from uh, people are going to be like, you don't, you don't want to crash, right? With people, you don't want to crash with other robots. So we have this laser range finder on the robot. So you avoid obstacles and you don't crash with the people. You know, I can imagine, uh, you know, millions of these things around. There are all sorts of places I'd like to go. I'd like to go to Machu Picchu. Although that particular robot doesn't look like he could roll around the, the <laughs> terrain of Machu Picchu. But I, mean, I would like to go to places like that. And if I could do that with my own navigatable telepresence. I'm beginning to get into this. this. This sounds like something that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Marco, thank you very much for uh, showing this to me. And the next time I see you, who knows, it might be uh, via telepresence. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much for the interview. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm going to uh, say goodbye to Marco here at the Innovation Lab and go back to my face-to-face -face interfaces with people. But, you know, that seems so limiting now. Marco Mascaro, by the way, is Vice President of Hardware at Ninth Sense Robotics. Okay, so the tele-robot that you met, Seth, it is a robot, but it's also a bunch of electronic hardware and computer software, and we interact with that a lot in our lives. So when does a jumble of electric circuitry qualify as a robot? This is Elon Robach. I'm a professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University, and I'm director of the CREATE lab that does community robotics here. Elon, before we go much farther into the program, we need to define what a robot is, and uh, maybe you can help me out with that. Could you answer a few questions about that? Sure thing. All right, I'm going to name a few objects, and you just sort of tell me whether you think it qualifies as a robot, whether it ought to get a little brass tag that says robot or not, and why. 
my automated garage door opener, is that a robot? No, not a robot, because it only responds to your one button press, and it's deadly dull. You can't have a conversation with it. <laughs> well, you can, but it never responds. All right. Well, what about uh, that telepresence device that I saw at Ninth Sense at NASA Ames Research Center? Is that a robot? Tello is definitely a robot, yes. Uh, it's a robot because you can actually use it to be present somewhere that you aren't physically present, and you affect the society there. So when you are there... You can blurt out something. You can change what's going on in terms of conversation and the people in the room 2,000 miles away from where you're physically located. It, it sounds like uh, robots are something that you really do interact with. Uh, my, I interact with my smartphone. I, is it a robot? I think so. In fact, smartphones are becoming ever more robotic. The fact that you can converse with Siri, for instance, that interaction, the fact that you can have an unexpected interaction with it and it can actually help you through your life, that starts to make it more and more of a robot and less and less of an appliance. Military drones. Definitely robots. Uh, the thing about military drones is they're just like Tello, except they can explode. Okay, so if you had, uh, you know, uh, 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 just a few sentences to define what a robot is, right, what, what would you say? I would say the single most important thing about robots and what makes them special is that they're something that glues the physical and the digital worlds together. You know, we have a lot of appliances, a lot of physical things like a toaster or a car. And on the other side, we have our Internet world. You know, we have the ability to have a Facebook account and to do searches in, in Google online. Robots are interesting because they connect the digital world to the physical world. So in a way, robots are a glue that never really existed before when we had these two different domains, the digital and the physical. And as that robot technology becomes more and more prevalent around us, we're going to start to blur the distinctions between the digital and the physical, between the virtual and the real. We are the robots. We are the robots. Ila Nurbaksh is a professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon, and we'll hear more from him about our robotic future later in the program. Maybe it's no surprise that the military is leading the way in the development of advanced robotics. We already employ unmanned aircraft, drones, for example. And for some truly dangerous jobs, there's a big advantage in having robots take the place of humans, dismantling bombs, for example. But that requires dexterity. Something that is nearly perfected in the human hand. So the Autonomous Robot Manipulation Program at Sandia National Laboratories has drawn on eons of evolutionary R&D to create the Sandia hand. Now picture a large metallic hand with the black and white sheath of, I don't know, a Star Wars stormtrooper. The hand can't quite dismantle bombs yet, but project scientist Kurt Salisbury says he's confident it eventually will. He demonstrated its prowess by bringing the Sandia hand to our studio. Kurt, I can't resist saying this. I have to give you a hand. But actually, it's you who have given us a hand. Or you <laughs> brought a hand here. I guess you get a lot of those jokes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, please describe what is in front of us. Sure. Yeah, so what we have in front of us here is a robot hand that my colleague Morgan Quigley and I have designed, built, and tested. This robot hand was intended originally to dismantle IEDs, roadside bombs, and hopefully it will have a wide variety of additional applications beyond that. This hand is consists of a hand frame, which is basically what we would think of as a palm, and then it has four identical finger modules. And these are fingers that have the motors contained within them, and they all plug into this palm with magnets and electrical spring contacts. Can I come over and shake the hand? Please do. Okay. Let's see. So it's a left-handed, so I can put out my, my right hand and shake it. Can it actually shake my hand? Not at the moment. Uh, we don't have it powered on uh, for you just at the moment, but it probably could, yeah. Can sure. you power it on? Yeah, we can do that. And he's turning on this hand, this robotic hand, and he's tipping it so that I can put my palm in its palm. You want to turn it just a little bit more so that it can grasp your hand sort of like that. Yep. <gasps> and so the, the fingers are closing over mine, or they're trying to. So right now the motors are... <laughs> it has are me in a grip. Okay. The motors are closing down on, uh, on the finger links <laughs> so that it's giving you a handshake now. It really is. It's shaking my hand. This is the first time I've ever shook hands with a robot. It's, it's soft. I mean, the, the, the hands are... How does it keep its hands so soft? It turns out that what we've found in human tissue is that the soft elements of our fingers enable us to do a lot of grasping and manipulation of objects within our hands. And so we were trying to mimic that. Some of the robot hands that exist today are all very rigid 
Here, what we did is we used a bunch of silicone material in order to have a big, thick, and soft tissue that coats the contact points of the hands. How do the fingers work? Can you describe that design? There's motors that sit within the finger modules themselves at the base of the fingers. And those motors drive cables, which then in turn drive the individual links of the finger. And so as you put your hand in the hand of the robot hand, what we did is we turned on those motors and that caused the finger links to close down on your hand. And what are some of the tasks that you want this hand to do? It, it was developed by DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. The original motivation was to dismantle IEDs. Typically what we do today is we go in and we disrupt the IEDs, which means we detonate them. The problem with that is that we don't get a lot of information about the IED. If we can go in and actually dismantle that ID, then it will give us some information about where individual piece parts came from, what countries they came from, and will help us in our political discussion with those countries about why or why not they should not be supporting these roadside bombs. So is there anything, Kurt, the, the hand can do for us right now? I mean, it's already shook my hand. I'm impressed with that. Oh, it is doing something. Oh, you grabbed a flashlight. Yeah, so right now it's grabbing a flashlight. Go ahead and open the grip a little bit and go ahead and close it again. And so uh, what we're showing here is that it's able to close the grasp on this flashlight and then actuate the light. And go ahead and so close it's it holding in. the flashlight right now. Did it, it just turned on the flashlight by itself? We're working on getting it to do that. Yeah. So what's happening is Kurt has taken a flashlight from the studio that we have here, and the robot is holding it and now is turning it on and off. How is it doing that? Right now we're controlling it remotely because our task was not necessarily to write the fully autonomous software in order to do this. The goal, though, is at the end of the day, the teams that are working on the autonomous software will put their software on our robot hand and enable the robot hand to do these tasks autonomously. Now, the fingers come off, I understand. Can you take a finger off? Now it feels like it would be hurting the hand because no, so it the, shook my hand. It felt so friendly, and now you're going to pull the finger off. So each of these fingers are attached with a magnet. There's a couple of uh, very strong neodymium magnets here that connect into some steel strips that sit in the palm itself. And then the electrical connections are made with some spring contacts like you might have on your wireless phone when you dock it into a charger. And so... Can what, I try putting it back on? Yes, please. Okay. Okay. So you pulled the finger off here. So this is... The, the ring finger uh, has no ring on it. So this, this robot is single currently. Okay. So I'm going to stick the finger back in and it just snaps right back into place. Now, now, why do this? Why have fingers that you can take off? It's a good question. It enables us to have a wide variety of different hand concepts that still enable the technology to be used. So we, here we have individual finger modules, and so we can make a palm that has three finger docks, or five finger docks, or 10 finger docks. My dream would be to someday make this into a centipede, where we use these fingers instead as legs, instead of as fingers. There are other reasons, though. One of the reasons is that if you get into an environment where you accidentally run the hand into some wall, or it gets hit by a hammer or something like that, then the fingers fall off and can be reset rather than breaking the fingers themselves. Do you spend a lot of time with robots? I do. I love robots. It's something that I've dreamed about doing ever since I was a little kid. And uh, ever since I watched the Transformer series cartoon on TV, I've been hooked. Why? Why do you love robots? That's a good question. I think just the mechanical and electrical magic, as well as computer science magic, that all has to happen to get this mechanical widget to not only do something interesting, but to kind of bring it to life so that it actually moves around. What I wanted to do is bring all of my mechanical designs to life. And doing that is very much in the field of robotics. So, Kurt, how close are we to creating a whole robot that's based on the human design? You have a very impressive hand there. All you need is another one, some legs, a torso, a head. How close are we? It's an excellent question. It turns out that there's a program being funded right now, also by DARPA, to pursue the rest of the robot. And as a part of that, there is a group that has built such a system already. And there will be a part of this program that will be putting software on this existing system that has a leg, two legs, a torso, two arms, a head. And then they will be testing out their software and seeing what they can get this fully humanoid robot to do. Kurt Salisbury, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And thank you to the hand. And can the hand wave goodbye, perhaps? The hand can wave goodbye. Okay. Hey, it's giving me a three-fingered wave goodbye. All right, terrific. Kurt Salisbury is a mechanical engineer at Sandia National Laboratory. 
Well, advanced robotics has more than just a hand in the door. Get ready for robots indistinguishable from humans. We heart robots on Big Picture Science. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That iconic moment in The Terminator when the time-traveling android from 2029 reveals his itinerary I'll be back could come true sooner than you think. Real robot technology is literally on the march. I'll be there soon. I just have to work out a few kinks first, but get ready. We heart robots on Big Picture Science. Or we should learn to heart them because they're going to be a part of our lives whether we're ready or not. But one person is quite prepared. Computer engineer Ela Nurbach from Carnegie Mellon University. So my job is a pleasure because I get to imagine the future of robotics and then talk to communities around the world and try and build robots that actually improve community living all over the world. How sure is he that robots are here to stay? His book title simply puts it Robot Futures. Ela, we've been promised sociable robots ever since uh, Rosie on the Jetsons. But, you know, the best I've seen around in my neighborhood are those Roomba vacuum cleaning robots. Uh, So are they really going to happen or is this, you know, pie in the sky that's never coming down to earth? Well, I've been studying how robots are entering society for years now, and I'm not exactly happy, more mortified to say it's really happening. And it's happening in a way that's really different from what we expected. You know, we always thought about things like Rosie as a robot that's kind of like a person. You can have an emotional attachment to it, kind of like a person. You talk to it, it talks back, and it looks like an android or a person, something like uh, out of C-3PO, out of uh, Star Wars. But in fact, what robots have become is a concept that's embodying a lot of the technologies in our world, from smartphones to robotic vacuum cleaners. And what's happening to robots is they're becoming better and better at being as different from humans as a social thing can possibly be. So rather than being like a person and having eyes that we can look at and having facial features that we can understand, they're going to be like an alien species landing on Earth, interacting with us, and we're not going to know quite how to behave with them or quite how much they know about us. By the same token, robots are becoming really easy to make. So you can have an entire DIY community of people creating completely new robots out of parts. And that DIY community is sort of like the explosion we had of websites in the 1980s and 90s, except now they're physical robots that will chase people around in parks and play games with you. Wait wait a minute. You're talking about DIY, do-it-yourself robots. I get a robot kit, but I can customize it if I'm the least bit clever. Uh, are, you, are you worried that I'm going to build you know, robots that go around and, you know, uh, I don't know, terminate all the uh, dogs and cats in the neighborhood or something? That's a really interesting problem is what will these DIY robots do? There's a great story to tell about a robot called Bumbot uh, that was born uh, in Atlanta just a couple of years ago. This gentleman started a pub there, and he didn't like the fact that homeless people were hanging out on the sidewalk. And he built a robot out of parts that pretty much anybody can buy today that has a high-pressure water cannon on it and speakers. And he managed to intimidate all of the homeless people off his sidewalk with a telepresent robot. They weren't able to overpower this robot? No, they were scared to death of it. It's got a very, very bright light on it and a high-pressure water cannon. And what's interesting about that is the idea that people will do all manner of things with robots. They'll do great and wonderful things as well. But, you know, it's going to be the Wild West for a while, Seth. You know, Ela, the robots we've met so far in the show here, one was a telepresence robot. Tello functions like a mechanical avatar, allows me to visit places, be present in places where I'm physically not. Uh, A military hand that's being programmed to defuse bombs, things like that. They're impressive, but, of course, they are a long way from, you know, Robbie the Robot or what else I've seen in the movies and on television. How should we consider the technology that's been developed so far? Is this just the the prelude? Is this the overture to the opera? It is an overture, but it's interesting. If you take that telepresent robot, something like Tello, and think about how it's controlled, there's something interesting about how how we're deploying robots today. Tello, if you were to go and, and look at it, if you were sort of a fly on the wall and you looked at it in a place where it's being used, 
it's going to have some real smarts behind it because there's a human being controlling it somewhere halfway around the world. What's going to happen in our world that's really interesting is that robots will sometimes be controlled by people, just like Tello, and sometimes they'll be autonomous. Sometimes they'll be making decisions for themselves. But you're not going to have a very good ability to discern when the robot is a robot and when it's just a vessel for a human being. So we're going to be in a situation where we don't actually have to wait for robots to become so smart that they can autonomously do everything around us. They just have to be good enough vessels that part of the time they're smart and part of the time they're human controlled. And once that happens, we're going to face lots of situations that are kind of ambiguous. Is that, is that robot there that's seating me at the table of the restaurant, is there a human controlling it? Should I joke with it? Should I flirt with it? Or is it just a robot, just a piece of technology? It won't be clear. Is this really going to change our lifestyles, or is it simply going to be a kind of an augmentation of our lifestyle, you know, like making it possible for everyone to have domestic help or something like that? Well, I think it'll change who we are. It'll change the ethics of how we live, because as we start to have robots that we ascribe agency to, if we have robots that are really doing things for us, are we going to say thank you to them? Um, are we going to ask them what they're up to on the weekend? Well, not at first. But we're going to be curious. We're going to be curious about the, the hidden lives of these robots. And what that'll do is it'll start setting up a weird two-class society where we treat the robots as one kind of being and people as another kind of being. And this should sound familiar. Uh, when we had issues of slavery, we had agency. And when you start ascribing agency to somebody, it becomes very difficult to withhold from them their freedom to make their own, their own decisions. So the thing about robots that's strange is they're going to become ever more capable. Every year they're going to do more. And as they do more, we're going to enter a more and more of an ethical quandary around just what is it that's, that's morally appropriate for us to demand of a robot and at what point do we need to start thinking more carefully about how we treat other sentient beings around us. You do research on machine-human interaction. So is there something about either robot behavior or its appearance or its manner or something that's essential if we want to view them as, a, if not an equal partner, at least a valued partner? Or do they just need big eyes or a reassuring manner about them? I mean, what, what is the essential of robot behavior that you think makes them better for interacting with humans? It's funny. Uh, people definitely design big eyes on their robots or faces on their robots, just like we put faces on cars because it, it makes people more empathetic toward them. But you should hear about some of the amazing experiments happening. People will uh, have children playing a game with a robot. In the middle of the game, the psychologist will take the robot and shove it into the closet and close the door. As the robot yells, no, no, I'm in the middle of a game. I'm afraid of the dark. Please don't lock me in the closet. And they observe the children to see what psychological effect it has on children. Uh, another uh, absurd, really interesting experiment is they have children and adults use a robot, and then they say, okay, well, this robot's not working well enough. Take this hammer and kill it. And they watch how the children kill the robot, and they look at the number of broken pieces you end up with. It's really a crazy uh, Wild West frontier. We don't even know how people should treat robots. And we're trying to figure out, is it okay to take a hammer and destroy a robot? What does that say about our humanity? And how will people emotionally respond to a robot saying things like, I'm afraid of the dark. Don't turn me off. What about the robots themselves having emotions? Uh, can you program hardware to have emotions? It sounded like you could if the, the robot's screaming, hey, let me out of the closet. I don't like the dark. Uh, you, can, you can certainly program it to be a great actor. The thing about acting and reality is it's hard to tell the difference. If I program that robot to have depressed days, to be sad sometimes, you know, in your robotic toaster, you tell it to toast some bread and it says, ah, not today, Seth. I'm just, I'm just bummed today. <laughs> you know, that's a different kind of toaster. That's a toaster that has emotion. Now, does it have real emotion? Does it have uh, blood coursing through its veins? No. But if it's simulating emotion and it's giving you the same awkward situation where you have to be polite to it and ask it, well, okay, but could you please just make me maybe one piece of toast? You know, it's, it's the same response socially that you're going to end up having to have as if it had real emotion. It sounds like you're going to negotiate with them. You obviously deal with robots, uh, I assume, every day. Do you ever find yourself having an emotional relationship with them? Do you give them, you know, nicknames or something? You know, I'm so deep into robotics. We build so many robots in my lab to try and, and help out communities that, in fact, I don't even call them he and she. I'm, I'm still stuck on calling them it. So I've done a really good job of separating myself from the robots, so to speak. Uh, but but I think I'm in the minority, and I think people who aren't engineers, people who didn't build the robots but they use them, are absolutely going to name them, they're going to care for them, they're going to love them. Uh, we have stories of people in war, soldiers, where the bomb disposal robot has gotten blown up by a bomb, 
they write to the company and send the parts of the robot and say, we want you to fix this robot. We don't want you to send us a replacement robot. That's not the same one. We want you to take this robot and fix it and send it back to us because it's hairy and it's our friend. Ila, clearly robots are getting more capable of things, and they're going to be able to make life and death decisions, and not necessarily on the basis of some guy with a joystick hundreds or thousands of miles away, but they might be able to do this autonomously, and that sounds a little bit dangerous. Are there some sorts of robots we really shouldn't be building? Absolutely. You know, there's been a big debate recently about robots on war and about the question of what it means to turn over lethal decision-making to robots. There have been some very conceptually challenging books, in my opinion, that have come out where people argue that robots are emotionless, so they make great soldiers. I'm worried by that. In fact, that really scares the heck out of me because the idea that we have emotionless robots governed by mathematical formula when our world isn't really fundamentally mathematical, it's, it's social and personal, but having them make mathematical decisions and then if it's 2.5, I shoot, and if it's 2.4, I don't shoot. It seems like such a antiseptic way to make a decision as important as life and death. So I believe there are you know, lines in the sand that we ought not cross. One of them is I don't think robots should actually make decisions about whether or not to kill people. I think people should be, so to speak, uh, above that kind of decision-making on the robot's part. Well, finally, Ila, um, I'm just sort of curious. Do you have any robots at home? That's a great question. The only kind of robots I have at home are the ones that my children build out of craft materials. Uh, my firm belief is that the best kind of robots are creative robots, robots that help us inspire our imagination. And so, believe it or not, I actually vacuum the floor manually, I mop the floor manually, and I make dinner with my hands. Um, but we use robots to be creative, just like we use things like pottery to be creative. Elon Norbosch, thank you so much for talking to me and proving that you're not a robot yourself. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be on your show, Seth. Ila Nurbaksh is professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University and the author of Robot Futures. And he made a strong case for a future chock-a-block with robots. Our world may not whirl and buzz with automatons yet, but then again, sometimes the future arrives by stealth. We redesign systems so that they're just a little more responsive to human needs. We make concessions here and there to automation, and in the process, our reliance on machines grows. And for some people, this opens up worlds. Joseph Karnicki is a retired engineer and a programmer, formerly with Varian Associates in Palo Alto, California. He now lives in Menlo Park. In the 1990s, about a decade after he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, he set about redesigning his home so that robotic systems would eventually take over the physical tasks that his body could no longer do. Well, I'm here at Joe Karnicki's house at his front door. Oh, the door just opened on its own. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Joe. I'm Molly. I'm Joe Karnicki. Glad to meet you. It's nice to meet you. How did you get that door to open? Well, two things. First of all, I saw you coming up the ramp on a video camera that, that looks out my front. And then I have a network of computers that send messages around. One of those computers controls the front door. No one can sneak up on you. Hard to. <laughs> <laughs> now, to what degree is your home automated or have robotic systems? Okay, it's, it's really heavily automated because I have very limited dexterity. You basically just use one hand. The, the components that are specifically robotic are a robotic arm that I used to eat with and the wheelchair you can consider sort of a robot. I see a lot of gadgets and a, a couple wires and so forth. What have you done to this wheelchair? Basically, I, I replaced the uh, conventional steering modality, which is a joystick here, which I can barely handle early in the day, with a speech input to control everything that I would otherwise control with, with a joystick. Then there's some auxiliary components that help the accuracy of the, of the driving, like a speedometer and uh, a gyrometer for uh, turning accurately. Now here, I'll do some wheelchair stuff. Okay, so uh, wake up, drive the wheelchair. So now your wheelchair is moving five feet. Suppose I want to drink some water there. Okay, wake up, back up. Understood. Port 30. Let me get out of the way. Okay. Port two. Understood. So those numbers that you're giving, 30 and 2, are those, it's not feet. What is that? For example, like like I said, port 30. That means turn left 30. And uh, I live off the degrees just so I don't have to say 
turn left 30 degrees. Now, this robot is agreeable for everything that you said. He said, understood, understood. What else might he say? Okay, let's, let's find something here. Wake up, 13, press enter key. Say what? So say what? He, he didn't understand what you said. Tilt back 20. Understood. The whole chair is tilting upward. And, and indeed, you're a retired engineer and programmer. So you did most of this, all of this in your house? I designed the systems myself. And uh, I didn't invent any particular components to make the systems. It's a question of using off-the-shelf affordable components, getting them all to work together. Now, that happened when you were diagnosed when you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. You realized that your home, you just couldn't live in it the way that it was, and you needed to change it. Is that what happened? That's, that's exactly what happened. And uh, I started putting the wheelchairs under speech control because I was having a harder and harder time steering the wheelchairs and manipulating with the joysticks. And mm-hmm. same with the robot arm, which I used to eat with. I was having a harder and harder time using forks and knives and stuff. And the alternative was to get somebody to help me eat all the time, which, it's, you know, I'd rather be independent. And, and that's really what these robots have done for you. And these systems has allowed you to maintain your independence. Yeah, they, they've allowed me to continue to live at home, basically. I, I get a lot of assistance at home anyway. I have people coming in in the morning and in the evening, they, you know, get me up mm-hmm. into the wheelchair and put me to bed and all that. But if I didn't have these automatic systems... I'd have to either go to a convalescent hospital or, or have somebody on hand all day to help me with stuff. Part of my enjoyment of life is being able to not only go where I want to go, but to deal with the people I want to deal with. And if I don't want to deal with somebody, I can choose that. We all want to have that choice, not to deal with the people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I might have it more than most at this point. <laughs> If robotics and computer technology continues to advance, as it will, what might you be able to do with your house, say, in five years or ten years' time? Wow. Gee, see, see there's, there's such a, a big gap between what can be done now and what humans do. So that I, I've always pictured myself as needing humans for a certain kind of assistance, you know, and devices for this this lower level assistance. We're such a long way from having any kind of a of a robot that could replace a human getting somebody in and out of bed. We're really a long way from that. Okay, so this is the uh, robotic arm and a plate of food in front of it. It's uh, maybe a three foot long arm with six degrees of freedom. It's controlled by a microprocessor. Open gripper full. So the clamp has just opened on the on the robot. Right, right. Edit target data. Go to bottom. At this point, I'm I'm telling the robot the characteristics of the sandwich, like how thick it is and everything like that, because it doesn't have sensors to to detect that by itself. So the sandwich now is on the end of a spear that the robot is holding out to you, so you could just right. go over and eat it now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that that's a robot for sure. And, you know, you, if you say intelligence, okay, so it, it knows where the spear is. It knows how to pick up a spear. And, and, and spear a sandwich. And spear a sandwich. Smarter than a bag of hammers, you know. Well, Joe, thank you very much for speaking with us and introducing us to your robots. Okay, it was my pleasure. It was fun showing the stuff off. I, I enjoy this stuff. Joseph Karnicki is a retired engineer and programmer living in Menlo Park, California. If you want to see videos of Joe's robotic systems, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Coming up, a fishy robot project that's not all washed up. It's Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. A long time ago, I mean a really long time ago, on the order of 360 million years, our slimy relatives first hoisted themselves out of the salt water and onto the land. It was one small flip-flop for an amphibian, but one giant step for animal kind. Because when that fish amphibian got its footing, it started the evolutionary path to land animals, to mammals, and eventually to humans. Everyone, I have arrived. And you're late. Soup's getting cold. Oh, sorry. But wait, before we go bipedal, let's revert a bit to those fins, because there's something fishy about human evolution. Our ancestral time as fish provided the basis for our physiology today. And to study this, professor of biology and cognitive science John Long combines the biology of our earliest ancestors with, as we've been hearing, our eventual replacements. Only... He's not interested in robot overlords. But in what bio-robots can teach us about biological design. If you visit his laboratory, you'll see tanks of fish, but not the scaly kind that most aquariums hold. John Long is author of Darwin's Devices, What Evolving Robots Can Teach Us About the History of Life and the Future of Technology. John, you build robotic fish. Why is this? Are you planning to use them to uh, attack enemy submarines or something? I told you please to not reveal our secret plans, but now that you have, I'll have to deny culpability and tell you something else entirely different. What we do with our robotic fish is to build a new kind of tool for biologists. So we build biorobots to study animals. We also evolve those biorobots and then call them evolvobots in order to study the process of evolution. You got into this, as I understand it, because you wanted to better know how the first fishy backbones evolved. And, you know, my reaction to that is, why is that important? (laughs) Do you ever eat sushi? Uh, Well, I do, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. You have a love of fish, and many of us do. We're all fish at heart, as it were, genealogically. Uh, Vertebrates, the group to which we belong, started out 500 million years ago as fish. So one reason for humans to care about studying early fishes is to study our evolutionary history. So by understanding how the first fish developed backbones, we would understand more about the evolution of the vertebrates, namely critters like us. Absolutely. And one of the wonderful paradoxes of this is the group is called vertebrates, which is after named after the fact that we have these bones called vertebrae in our back, the so-called backbones. But yet the first vertebrates didn't have vertebrae. So what we do is we try to understand, well, how did we get vertebrae? This is clearly a very important part of our lineage. So let's understand the evolutionary pressures that may have driven the evolution of this key innovation. Now, you had an hypothesis that natural selection was responsible for the appearance of vertebrae. I I, I guess that's not much of a radical hypothesis there. (laughs) But that it had something to do with the ability of early fish to survive by getting to food faster than their brethren. Correct. And really what we're after is the process, the mechanism that may have been responsible for these early and important evolutionary changes. So what you do is you start simple. That's the KISS principle. Uh, Keep it simple, stupid. So you try the simplest stuff first and you try to refute those ideas. So our first idea we actually refuted and that was that it was simply a matter of competing with your brethren for food. But you did this. You, you made this proof not by studying the fossil record. You, you built robots. Now, I got to say that, you know, building a robot sounds a priori a little more interesting than going out into the field and digging in the dirt. But couldn't you have done this by studying fossils? So there are things you can learn from fossils that you can't learn from robots. So you can learn about specific types of anatomy that occurred. But fossils tell no tales. There's no behavior. There's no ecology. They are, surprise, surprise, dead, right? So you can study their bones and you can study impressions of organs, but you can't get 
the behavior and the interactions among individuals that we call ecology. So we build a special class of robots called biorobots, which are autonomous. We don't remote control them. They behave on their own. And once we set them up with sensory input and motor outputs, we stand back and watch them interact. Describe the robots that you built to attack this problem of the development of these bony parts along our backbones. Yeah, the robots we've built are called TADROs, which is short for tadpole robots because they kind of have a bulbous tadpole head and then a skinny little tail. And in that tail, which does the propulsion, is where the vertebral column is encapsulated. So these guys are about, oh, I'd say, you know, 35 centimeters long from head to tail, a little over a foot. And they swim around on the surface of the water. They have two eyes that register the intensity of light that's hitting the robot, uh, left and right. And then they also have a structure called a lateral line, which is a really interesting piece of anatomy that fishes have that allows them to detect predators in the water. And then we had to build a predator whose only job was to chase the tadros around the tank. So you introduced a selection pressure predation, all right? Correct. The deal was it was more than you just getting dinner. It was you avoiding being dinner. Uh, But how do you do that with robots? I mean, robots don't eat other robots. So (laughs) how do you introduce predation? Well, you know what? Um, One of the great things about this is this method, which we call evolutionary biorobotics, is depending on how you build the body and the brain of your robots, you get behavior that emerges from their interactions. You don't program in behavior per se. You program in how you respond to sensory input, what's going on in your eyes and the lateral line in the case of these Tadros. And so, in fact, when we start out, we say, hey, we'd like this predator to chase the prey. We don't know what's going to happen, so we have to fiddle around a whole bunch to try to arrange a high probability that predation is going to happen. And so in terms of the electronics that goes into this, in order for the predator to detect the prey, it turns out what we actually have to do is help the predator a lot. We have to put a little beacon on the prey that says, here I am, come to me, eat me. And so the predator can detect that. Okay, so the the predators, I understand, they have some sort of equivalent of radar, although I don't think it's radar in the water, (laughs) but whatever it is. All right, Right. so... And so they can find the prey, they chase it, and the prey, of course, well, they don't get gobbled up, but they, they do something, they have some sort of behavior that you can mark as, I don't know, a reaction to this. So they just sort of swim away, and that keeps them from food, and so in the end, you know, I don't know, some sort of optimized predator-prey relationship may develop here? Well, you've used uh, a really important word, and that is optimized. Evolution doesn't optimize. It suffices. It just gives the best result at that time and place, depending on the genetic variation that's in your population. So we build a population of these prey robots. They're variable for the characters that we're interested in, the number of vertebrae, for example. We actually also evolve the sensitivity of the lateral line and the shape of the tail. So the population varies in this regard because if there's no variation, if there aren't choices on the menu, if all you can do is order a hamburger, right, you can never evolve other types of menu food, sorry to extend a stupid metaphor. Um, But if you're evolving, you need variation in there. And so the selection pressures, which include the predator, but are not limited to that predator, is kind of a evolutionary Olympics. So if you can imagine, there's an unseen judge that is judging the behavior of the prey robots and all of them together, you pick winners every generation. And so in our case, we had a population size in the Tadro 4 world of six robots, and we allowed the top three to breed, that is to mutate and recombine their genome to make the instructions for the next generation. I'm still not getting the mechanics of this because, of course, uh, I, I assume robots do not have sex, or if they're doing it, I hope they're doing it when you're not watching. But, you know, so how do you mutate these things? Do you build new sets of robots based on the characteristics of the ones that were most successful at getting food or whatever it was, whatever metric you were using? Yeah, that's exactly right. And let's go back to sex just for a moment because everybody likes to talk about it. And you're right. It's totally uninteresting uh, for us because these robots actually don't have sex in front of us. They do this in software with zeros and ones. It's all in binary code. So really the life cycle of our robots, our evolving robots, includes a software component, which an engineer would call a genetic algorithm. 
and it includes the hardware component of the actually physically embodied robot out in front of us. Let me ask you this, John. What's the bottom line in terms of the evolution of our vertebral columns, all those little backbones that give us so much trouble as we get older? <laughs> I mean, what, what did you learn? How did the first fish develop this? What was it that forced them into developing vertebrae? What we know for sure in terms of refuting a hypothesis, right, proving ourselves wrong, is it wasn't as simple as just finding food. It's when you toss in that predator that suddenly the selection pressure is much stronger. So it looks like selection for enhanced feeding and fleeing and rewarding behaviors where you are swimming faster, higher accelerations, you're more sensitive to predators in your environment, and yet when you get to the food, you hang around there. There's some trade-offs in there. That looks like a reasonable hypothesis for what may have driven that early evolution of vertebrae. Now, I want to say we'll never know for sure, right? So all we can do is circumscribe the plausible. We can say, you know what, this idea is more likely than some other idea. But we can't know for sure, and that's the bane of any historical science. John Long, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome, Seth, and thank you for having me on the show. The Long and the Short of Robotic Fish from John Long, Professor of Biology and Cognitive Science at Vassar College. He's the author of Darwin's Devices, What Evolving Robots Can Teach Us About the History of Life and the Future of Technology. We heart our production team, and they are not automatons. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Rena Shake-Lesko. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to We Heart Robots, and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because your servo motors make you want to do that, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. What follows is an actual excerpt from Carl Chapek's 1920 play, Rossum's Universal Robots. Tell us how to maintain life, sir. I've told you, I've told you time and again, you need to find some people. It's only people that can procreate, renew life, and put things back to how they used to be. We have looked everywhere. There are no people. Oh, why did you destroy them? Unless you make it possible for us to procreate ourselves, we will die out. Oh, just get out. You're just things, just slaves. And you want to multiply? If you want to live, you'll have to breed like animals. People did not make us able to breed. Teach us how to make robots. We will make ourselves by machine. We will erect a thousand steam machines. We will start a gush of new life from our machines. Nothing but life. Nothing but robots. Millions of robots. Robots aren't life. Robots are machines. We used to be machines, sir. But by means of pain and horror, we have become... Become what? We have obtained a soul. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.